previously on Breakdown. The special grand jury's work has been a matter of national and local importance. The report offers a clear view into the process, and its availability will increase the public's trust in our system of justice. I think at this time next year, this case is going to be in some stage of litigation. I don't know whether it'll be appellate litigation or whether it'll be in a trial court. But, you know, if I had to actually make predictions, I think that the best guess right now is, is that the grand jury's report has recommended indictments. I don't know that she needs much more time to put her ducks in a row. Again, let's remember... If she decides to go for a RICO charge, she's very familiar in that space. She has one of the top Georgia experts in terms of John Floyd on her team in that. She's got other Georgia evidence experts on her team. So I think they have been working on this for a long time. So we had the court hearing over whether the special purpose grand jury's final report can be made public. A coalition of more than a dozen major news outlets argued for its release. The district attorney's office urged Judge Robert McBurney to keep it under wraps, for now at least. But one thing seems almost certain. The special grand jury has recommended criminal charges be brought against multiple individuals. We just don't know who. Yet. DA Fonnie Willis all but told the court during the hearing that charges are being recommended. And Willis indicated that she soon expected to say whether she's seeking indictments or perhaps simply to announce that she's obtained indictments against certain individuals. This is episode 23, Decisions Are Imminent, of season nine of Breakdown, The Trump Grand Jury, from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, pina colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or, better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome back to Breakdown, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's podcast covering Georgia's most important cases. I'm Bill Rankin, the AJC's legal affairs reporter. And I'm senior reporter Tamar Hallerman. As we told you in episode 22, it'll be Judge McBurney's call as to whether the special grand jury's final report becomes public. On January 24th, he presided over a 90-minute hearing, during which he peppered lawyers from the DA's office and the news media with questions about the law and court precedents he needs to follow. Here he is at the outset, framing the issues. We need to talk about whether this final report is the equivalent of a general presentment, if those terms really even make a difference. 
Um, and we need to talk a little bit about how the final report might be viewed as what the courts have referred to as court records, which enjoy a presumption of public access, or if this final report is somehow something different. Um, and I'll note going in that there are precious few cases in Georgia dealing with special purpose grand juries because they are few and far between. But there are some, and they provide some guidance as to um, what can happen with a final report from a special purpose grand jury. I think there is precedent for their final reports being disclosed. I'm holding one in my hand. He was holding the final report issued in 2013 by the special purpose grand jury in DeKalb County that recommended indictments and further investigations into public corruption. I just want to be thoughtful about it because there's clearly great interest in the work that the special purpose grand jury completed and we need to be responsive to what may be competing concerns of the investigative interests of the district attorney's office and the public's interest in understanding what its colleagues, the members of the special purpose grand jury, did after they heard the evidence that was presented to them. Fulton prosecutors are a few minutes late to the hearing. Once they get situated at their table, they realize they're missing some materials and step out. It clearly irks McBurney, who forces one of the more junior prosecutors to hang back. After a few minutes, he tells the remaining prosecutor that he'll have to stand in for his bosses, but that doesn't hold for long. Special Prosecutor Nathan Wade steps back into the room, and he's soon followed by DA Fonnie Willis. Willis steps up to the podium to give an opening statement. What she says is quite revealing. Back in May of last year, the Honorable Chief Brasher swore in 26 members of the public to create a special purpose grand jury. Their entire function was to be an investigative tool. And we are very, very thankful to those citizens. As you and I both know, they gave up a great deal of their time. Hopefully you and I can agree on that. We do. And um, heard from 75 witnesses, saw countless exhibits, but all for the purpose of investigation. Often when a prosecutor is in a trial courtroom, they find themselves in this position of not only protecting the rights of the victims, the witnesses, and the community, but making sure that defendants' rights are protected too. You heard that, right? Making sure defendants' rights are protected? Sure sounds like indictments are forthcoming. Willis then answers the question that's been on our mind for the last month. No, she does not want the report to be made public. At least, not right now. Sometimes with a very selfish interest, you don't want the case overturned. And so as the prosecutor, we stand in that position of protecting everyone in the courtroom's rights. Having been one of very few people that have had the opportunity to read that report, you being the other one, I think we can assume that fact is also true. In this case, the state's understands the media's inquiry and the world's interest. But we have to be mindful of protecting future defendants' rights. And so what the state does not want to see happen, and don't think that there's any way that the court would be able to guarantee, is that if that report was released, there somehow could be arguments made that it impacts the right for later individuals, multiple, to get a fair trial, 
to have a fair hearing, to be able to be tried in this jurisdiction, the list can go on and on. And so representing the state of the Georgia and these citizens, I know we do have this common interest. We want to make sure that everyone is treated fairly. And we think for future defendants to be treated fairly, it's not appropriate at this time to have this report released. At this time, in the interest of justice and the rights of not the state but others, we are asking that the report not be released because you having seen that report, decisions are imminent. All right. She says to McBurney, you've seen the report. Decisions are imminent. It's about to get real, that's for sure. After Willis sits down, Chief Senior DA Donald Wakeford takes the podium to make his case and field a barrage of questions from McBurney. The judge cites a state Supreme Court opinion that says Georgia grand juries aren't as secretive as most people would think. In that decision, the high court said only a grand jury's deliberations are secret. And if that's the case, why should this special grand jury's final report be kept under wraps? Wakeford has this exchange with McBurney. He says that later, he may want to file a motion to support his case. So in other words, that the, the, the report is not, a decision is not rendered and the report is not released at 12.59 p.m. on today or something. That's not how it will happen. Okay. There'll be notice in case um, there are decisions that want to be made after you understand what the decision is. Understand. Um, I also will, uh, sorry for all the prefaces, but I, I, am in, I have to be a little bit circumspect because I have to talk about this report in an att while attempting not to divulge the contents of the report. I, I intend to do the same. Wakeford notes that this special grand jury was impaneled at the request of the district attorney to conduct a criminal investigation and also was empowered to issue charging recommendations. And so the actual content of the report, I think gives us some guidance here as to how, how secret to perceive, or how, how much uh, respect to provide the secrecy of this report. Because as your honor knows, ongoing criminal investigations have a different, uh, a different understanding as far as court records are concerned in this state. And in fact, records that are part of an ongoing criminal investigation are not subject to public scrutiny. When the district attorney requested that the special purpose grand jury engage in this investigation and provide recommendations if they saw fit, it was as part of an, at that time, and at this time, ongoing criminal investigation. If that report contains information, it is for the use of the district attorney per the impaneling order. If that report contains charging recommendations, that is certainly solely for the use of the district attorney. Wakeford and McBurney then talk about whether the law treats what's called a general presentment from a grand jury differently from what this special grand jury calls a final report. Then McBurney says this. They called it a final report. I told them to call it a final report. You asked for a final report, so that's why it says final report. Wakeford says it's all about timing. I also think that leads to the conclusion that there is, there's a discretionary aspect here. And that is something that Madam DA was actually speaking to. Um, if there are recommendations, the district attorney requested those. And if, if there are any in there, or if there are not any in there, the district attorney in its ongoing investigation has to assess what has been provided by the special purpose grand jury. 
There has been no opportunity whatsoever for this office to incorporate anything in the document into an ongoing investigation in a meaningful way and to make the ultimate decision that only the district attorney is empowered to make, which is either there will be the, the, the investigation is over and no charges will be pursued or the investigation is over and charges will be pursued. We think immediately releasing before the district attorney has even had an opportunity to address publicly whether there will be charges or not because there has not been a meaningful enough amount of time to assess it is as wakeford pauses to find the right word willis sitting behind him whispers dangerous is dangerous it's dangerous to the people who may or may not be named in the report for various reasons it's also a disservice to the witnesses who came to the grand jury and spoke the truth to the grand jury. McBurney then makes this observation, something we've talked about on Breakdown, how perceived prejudice is all relative. How does one reconcile this perspective with the parallel, highly public proceedings with the January 6th commission? Many of the same witnesses, hopefully saying similar things if they were asked the same question, but that's not my business. And the commission actually referring to the Department of Justice, you need to look at these people for these things. Dangerous? Pressure on the Department of Justice? They seem to withstand that, and uh, they're doing what they're doing. Wakeford responds by saying, that's a different situation because Congress did not have to follow Georgia law when it released its report and made its referrals for prosecution. So Congress, it, it's, there, if there's danger created because they are not bound similarly by concerns of grand jury secrecy or traditional secrecy here, uh, or the I'll put it this way. Congress was going to conduct this investigation because Congress can induct inv investigations. That's something it is empowered to do. It was not conducting an investigation at the request of the, of the Department of Justice to provide it recommendations which would inform its ongoing investigation. That's what happened here. I, I don't know that you've pointed to any law that says the final report must not be disclosed. Reasons for it, policy reasons, but it may not, must not. I don't think that's what statute or case law says. Um, and so I think it's going to be a balancing. And so some of the very powerful policy arguments that I've been hearing from you and from the district attorney, well, you need to be thoughtful about lots of stakeholders. Um, and uh, I. You and I both heard the district attorney whisper, dangerous, and then you said dangerous. And I was merely observing that a parallel process occurred um, in Washington, D.C., and, and the world kept spinning, and referrals were made, and DOJ processed that, and they're going to do what they're doing. And clearly they didn't feel like, well, we better do something right now, because very publicly the January 6th commission referred certain charges against certain people. Um, so I, 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 if... An argument you're making, the district attorney's office is making, no matter who the person is, but that your office is making is, look, um, it may be post-indictment, it makes all the sense in the world to disclose the report. Um, but before then, you're hamstringing an investigation, maybe putting inordinate pressure on someone. I get these things, but that doesn't seem to have caused the wheels to fall off the DOJ bus. Well, we don't know, Your Honor. Uh, we, we don't know because <laughs> the DOJ operates in such complete secrecy, and their grand jury proceedings are subject to uh, much more powerfully secretive requirements. Um, so, so frankly, we, we don't quite know the answer to that question. Again, Wakeford says it's all about timing. 
the time for this conversation really should be after the district attorney, like what to do with the report, what, what is the nature of the public or secret nature of the report should come after the district attorney has an op had an opportunity to state, I am not pursuing charges or I am pursuing charges, or even I have sought charges and here is the indictment that has been true billed. At that point, the, the relative stance, the, the, the status of everyone involved will be much clearer and we will have a much better roadmap for how to handle secrecy or publication. Before Wakeford sits down, McBurney says he wants to throw a wrinkle at him. What would prevent a special purpose grand juror from reaching out to the media saying, I'll tell you what's in the report? Other than me telling them, but what would be the basis for me telling them that? Because it's not deliberations. The judge says, I hear your concerns about releasing the report at this time. But now I am special purpose grand jury member McBurney, and I disagree with that approach. Um, I'm not going to tell you our deliberations. I'm going to tell you how we came up with what we came up with, why we did. I'm going to tell you what several witnesses said because I didn't like what they said or I really liked what they said because their testimony isn't protected in any way. Um, why could that not happen? Or on what basis could I forbid it from happening so that there could be contempt if it did happen? Because the report is the necessary result of the deliberations of the grand jury. McBurney doesn't sound too satisfied with that response. So is a jury verdict, so is an indictment, so is a general presentment or a special presentment. It's the synthesis of, it's the end product of, but it's not the deliberations. We just hope some special grand jurors who may want to talk were watching the hearing or are listening to Breakdown. We're not that hard to find at all, just saying. There was another interesting moment during the hearing when Wakeford asked for and received permission to confer with Willis. As they whispered, Willis was apparently unaware the court's mic was picking up what she was saying. At one point, she says, Future defendants. Trump. Did you hear that? She said, Future defendants trump. Presumably, she was going to say the rights of future defendants trump the need to release the report at this time, but she quickly cut herself off, telling Wakeford not to use that word, trump. Wakeford closes with this. The main point is that today is not the time, now is not the time, but eventually we will have a better idea of when the time will be. And that the district attorney's office is not opposed to the eventual release. It's opposed to it right now, and it's opposed to releasing it without very careful consideration in light of all the other factors that are in play. This is Breakdown from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Ocean breeze, tropical beach. An air freshener can make your car smell like paradise. A drive to Daytona Beach will actually get you there. Beach on. Plan your trip today at DaytonaBeach.com. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Next up is Atlanta attorney Tom Clyde. 
Like we told you, news media outlets were going to intervene and ask for the final report to be published. But we had no idea how impressive the coalition turned out to be. Joining the AJC were The New York Times, The Associated Press, ABC News, CBS News, CNN, Bloomberg News, The Wall Street Journal, USA Today, two Atlanta TV stations, WSB-TV and WXIA-TV, and others. And we were proud to see the AJC's wonderful attorney, Tom Clyde, make the case for the news media intervener. So, Mr. Clyde, your clients are going to get the report eventually. Can we go home? No, Your Honor. Uh, obviously, um, we believe the report should be released now and in its entirety. And that approach is consistent with the way the American judicial system operates. In other words, it is not unusual for a district attorney or a prosecuting authority to be generally uncomfortable with having to release information during the progress of a case. That occurs all the time. But the judicial system, time and time again, has said, when matters are brought to the court system, we are going to be, require them to be made public because the faith of the public in the court system is much improved by operating in a public way. Clyde says that only in the most extraordinary circumstances have the state's appellate courts and the U.S. Supreme Court allowed court records to be sealed. We acknowledge the operations of the grand jury while it was ongoing were subject to a veil of secrecy. But that, as the court has explained, that has come to an end and they've issued a final report. And that final report is the outcome of a judicial process, not an executive branch criminal investigation. They invoked the judicial process of the special purpose grand jury statutes. And now that special purpose, purpose grand jury has issued a report and the jurors themselves have asked for it to be published. There's enormous public interest in what they have said, and that exists in this state, it exists across the nation, it exists beyond the nation. And we believe the statutory law supports its public release right now. We believe the case law supports its public release right now. And we believe constitutional law, including our own state constitution, requires its release right now. Clyde says he doesn't believe the state has made any showing that this is one of those exceptional circumstances to require keeping the final report under wraps. And he also points out that the presumed targets of the investigation are not demanding that the report be kept under seal. Remember how we told you it was possible for lawyers for targets or likely targets might be speaking up at the hearing? Well, as far as we could tell, none of them were in McBurney's courtroom on the 24th and no one ended up speaking out. I respect the district attorney's um, statement about the protection of other people, and that is an admirable statement for a district, any district attorney to make. But other people, particularly the other people that were involved in this grand jury, are represented by their own counsel. This hearing took place, was widely publicized. Their counsel aren't here. Clyde then makes this point. The risk of prejudice to them is actually much less than it is with many, many documents that are disclosed during the judicial process. Indictments get entered, as the court is very aware, indictments get entered by the state or by the federal government with a great deal of de 
detail, sometimes press conferences, that drive defense counsel crazy. Uh, there, but, but there's never been any suggestion, and there couldn't be, that that process should be closed. Hearings take place about the exclusion of evidence or the exclusion of witnesses. All those hearings take place publicly. The documents related to them have to be disclosed as court records. Those are much more, much closer in time to a trial. You would think if there are indictments, the DA's office will most definitely hold a press conference that's covered nationwide. There'll be enormous publicity. So wouldn't that be even more prejudicial to the people being charged? Like he did with Wakeford, McBurney asks Clyde if a judge had told the Fulton special grand jurors not to talk, could jurors challenge that? Clyde says they could, and would only be subject to prior restraint under extraordinary circumstances. As the court knows, the extraordinary circumstances for it to, to warrant a prior restraint are typically uh, situations that are putting the national security of the nation at risk. In other words, the, loc I mean, the examples that have been used by the United States Supreme Court are, are the location of warships in time of war, things like that. That can justify a prior restraint. But here, uh, as long as the grand jurors abided by the oath they were required to take and the General Assembly approved, I, I think they're within their rights speaking about their experience. Here, we're, if we're talking about risk to, to potential defendants facing a trial years into the future, that this document is really doesn't rise to the level of the routine kind of documents that are disclosed publicly during the judicial process. So I don't think there's a compelling case for protecting other people's rights. I almost feel like we should be giving out our phone numbers just in case some of the grand jurors are listening. I know, right? Clyde finishes by addressing Wakeford's contention that the final report is an extension of the special grand jury's deliberations. But I, I don't think you could seal the final report as being a, a part of their deliberations. And, and candidly, I think the statement by the special purpose grand jurors that they wanted their report published speaks to that. I don't, I, I don't think they're, they see it as an exposure of their deliberations. They see it as this is the judgment, I, and I read it, but they see it as this is the judgment, or the judgment that we've reached. And that's what the court system historically said, that document becomes public. McBurney gives Wakeford the last word. Since the grand jury's preference has been afforded great weight as it should be, and I'll take this opportunity to say, the district attorney's office, as I'm sure your honor is, are enormously grateful to these citizens for the really above and beyond contribution of their time, energy, and efforts to this process. We wanna act in, uh, in, with respect to their wishes, but we also have to act in, as stewards of an ongoing criminal investigation of which they were a vital part. And so with regard to the timing aspect, we think that, that since they did not speak to manner, your honor has a discretion there if this is a general presentment. And so no matter which route we take to, to get, where we end up is, it's a question of timing. And now is just not the time. It, it, the time will come and the district attorney is committed to that idea, it's just not immediate. Got it.
McBurney thanks both sides for being well prepared and for their thoughtful arguments. Then he says this. This is not simple. I think the fact that we had to discuss this for 90 minutes shows that it is somewhat extraordinary, uh, Mr. Clyde. Um, Partly what's extraordinary is what's at issue here, um, the alleged interference with the presidential election. But it's also extraordinary in the plain meaning of that word is that it's not ordinary to have special purpose grand juries doing things. That doesn't mean, however, that there hasn't been a course of conduct developed over time as to what happens with special purpose grand jury reports or presentments. Um, It also doesn't mean that we can't, I can't figure out a way to assess the final report through the lens of grand jury secrecy and the statutory scheme for grand juries. My proposal is that I think about this a little bit and then contact um, both groups, the district attorney's office and the interveners, if I've got specific questions for which I'd like more input. Um, And then you're welcome to file something um, or provide an email that these are the cases you should look at. Um, As I said early on, um, there'll be no rash decisions. There's not gonna be an order that pops out with no notice and attached to it is the report. There'll be an order um, if there's going to be disclosure that perhaps says this is when it would happen so that both sides have a chance to react and take whatever steps they'd wanna take in light of an order that says this is gonna happen um, a little ways down the line. So they're, they're, no one's going to wake up with it, the court having disclosed the report on the front page of a newspaper. Dang, we didn't like hearing that. Not one bit. The report, of course, exists in the district attorney's control. So if uh, it does show up, um, folks will need to work through that. But I will circle back and uh, we'll figure out the best way to move forward with this. So when McBurney said he'll give notice to both sides, what he was really saying is that he will give the losing side the opportunity to appeal his decision. And I must say, I've covered countless court hearings. This one ended with me not feeling strongly one way or the other about how McBurney is going to rule. What did you think, Tamar? Initially, it felt to me that McBurney was very skeptical of prosecutors' arguments for sealing the report. But by the end of the hearing, I wasn't so sure. It's worth noting that McBurney could end up trying to split the baby. He could release portions of the report while redacting the really spicy stuff. That would be no fun for us. We also have a few other tidbits we want to fill you in on. The first is a very interesting little nugget that McBurney shared at the beginning of the hearing. The judge said he had hand-delivered a copy of the final report to the DA's office once he and his colleagues signed off on dissolving the special grand jury. That's the one copy I'm aware of that is in circulation within the district attorney's span of control. That's presumably to cut down on leaks. As you heard in passing from the DA at the beginning of the hearing, grand jurors heard testimony from 75 witnesses. Now throughout this grand jury process, I've kept an informal list of people I know had been subpoenaed or otherwise summoned to testify. And I managed to account for a little over 50 names. So 75 is a considerably higher number than I'd realized, which makes this final report an even more tantalizing document. I'm sure some are people we've never even heard of. No doubt. Way back in Episode 8, we told you about Trump's legal team in Georgia, anchored by defense attorneys Drew Fendling, Marissa Goldberg, and Jennifer Little. Well, the three of them have stayed under the radar since their gigs were first announced back in August. They've declined interviews and requests for comment. That changed on January 23rd, 
when the trio issued a joint statement. First, they clarified that they would not be attending the hearing with McBurney, nor would they be speaking up on Trump's behalf. They also said this, quote, To date, we have never been a part of this process. The grand jury compelled the testimony of dozens of other often high-ranking officials during the investigation, but never found it important to speak with the president. He was never subpoenaed nor asked to come in voluntarily by this grand jury or anyone in the Fulton County District Attorney's Office. Therefore, we can assume that the grand jury did their job and looked at the facts and the law, as we have, and concluded there were no violations of the law by President Trump. So Willis opted to not ask Trump for his view during the investigation, which is something she'd previously left the door open to. There are plenty of prognosticators who will likely take that as a sign that Trump is a target of the investigation. Trump himself also weighed in on the morning of the McBurney hearing on his platform, Truth Social. He echoed statements he made in the past about the Fulton County investigation, that his phone conversation with Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger was perfect, and that the election was stolen. He said, quote, My phone call to the Secretary of State of Georgia and a second call, which the Marxists, communists, racists, and rhinos don't even want to talk about, were perfect calls. Many people, including lawyers for both sides, were knowingly on the line. I was protesting a rigged and stolen election, which evidence proves it was. I won Georgia by a lot, but only needed a small number of votes from that total number. They cheated in many ways, including stuffing ballots, all caught live on tape. Trump continued, quote, With many people on the line on what was a perfect call protesting the rigged Georgia election, which I have a clear right to do, and in fact an obligation to do since I made the call as president, how come not one person said, while on the call, that I acted inappropriately or made a statement of protest at what I said and then slammed down the phone? Not one, even with so many opposing people, lawyers, and others on the line. No admonishment at all. We nicely agreed to speak again. So it's clear Trump isn't conceding any points. But that isn't enough to sway the likes of breakdown regular Norm Eisen. During a recent press briefing, the former Obama administration ethics czar predicted this. The great likelihood, the substantial likelihood, the strong possibility is that Donald Trump and his co-conspirators have been recommended for criminal charges under multiple Georgia statutes for their attempted coup and assault on the 2020 election results. But Eisen's view isn't shared by everyone. Bill and I recently interviewed a former assistant U.S. attorney who has a more skeptical view that Willis could get any potential charges to stick. I've known John Malcolm since the 1990s, when he was a federal prosecutor in Atlanta working on fraud and public corruption cases. He's now at the Heritage Foundation, a conservative think tank, where he's vice president for its Institute for Constitutional Government. We asked Malcolm to weigh in on the developments in the Fulton County investigation thus far, and his response is worth considering. Certainly there is a very aggressive uh, district attorney, Fannie Willis, uh, down there. She's conducted a rather remarkable investigation. You know, it's uh, highly irregular to say the least. I'm not saying that it's improper, 
Um, but this is the kind of investigation that you would think would probably be conducted by the federal government, if at all. For starters, Malcolm takes issue with the way many people have interpreted the Trump-Raffensperger phone call. Malcolm says Trump wasn't being nefarious when he said find 11,780 votes. Donald Trump, as is his want, is hardly uh, a model of clarity. That is for sure. Uh, but when you look at that transcript, it seems to me that most of the time when he uses the word find, he is saying, we, the Trump legal team, we need to find 12,000 votes or to be more precise, uh, uh, 11,800 votes. One more vote than the 11,007, uh, or, or I guess it was, uh, what, 11,780 if he'd come up with uh, that, that amount. He's saying, we need to find that. He's not saying, Brad, you need to go out there and find that for me. And you don't hear Brad Raffensperger on that call saying, Mr. President, what you're asking me to do is improper and I refuse to do it. Now, again, I can't crawl into Donald Trump's head. Uh, nor would I particularly want to. Uh, so I can't tell exactly what he was saying, but I can read the words. And one thing it is, it is he clearly didn't say, Brad, you need to find me these votes. And Brad Raffensperger did not say, Mr. President, I'm not going to do that. Again, you need to look at this stuff and say, you're talking about trying to indict the former president of the United States. That is a big deal, unprecedented in our nation's history. Now, are you really going to put the country through that on the basis of an equivocal conversation? Maybe there's something else out there that I do not know about, but not on the basis of that uh, conversation. We asked Malcolm to weigh in on some of the evidence presented to the January 6th committee from witnesses like White House aide Cassidy Hutchison, former Attorney General Bill Barr, and members of Trump's own campaign team. Several said they informed Trump that he had lost the election and there was no widespread voter fraud. And in some of those cases, Trump apparently acknowledged that he had lost. Many of the legal analysts we've interviewed for this podcast say that testimony helps establish Trump's criminal intent. If there were dead-bang evidence, and it would have to be more than just Cassie Hutchison overhearing a conversation, I would think, if you're going to charge a former president, to say he had rejected all of that as a bunch of hooey, but he was doing this anyway because he really was attempting to have his own private coup. Malcolm says there are many people who are in the president's orbit at that time who really did believe their claims of a stolen election, and they still do. The president is hearing some people saying, Mr. President, this is nonsense. Yes, voter fraud occurs in every election, but there's certainly not enough voter fraud uh, to overturn this election, or at least not the evidence isn't there. And in the meantime, he's got other lawyers saying, we're digging, we're getting up, we're getting affidavits, we're filing lawsuits, and, and we firmly believe that this election uh, was stolen. Some of these uh, theories seemed more plausible at the time. Some of them to me even sounded sounded wacky back then, but there were people who were telling him that these things had really happened. Now, you can say it was not reasonable for him to believe the people who were telling him that the election was stolen. The more reasonable people were the people telling him the election wasn't stolen. But that doesn't mean that at the time he was making these statements, 
he didn't really believe that the election had been stolen. He was putting more stock in the hands of the people who were saying, the fraud is all there. Malcolm is also critical of the DA's office labeling Georgia's 16 alternate Republican electors as investigation targets. He said there's historical precedent from the 1960 election between Richard Nixon and John F. Kennedy, which we've discussed in previous episodes. He also mentioned the election of 1867, when three states submitted dueling slates of electors to Congress for the contest between Rutherford Hayes and Samuel Tilden. He also pointed to the year 2000, when some congressional Democrats floated appointing alternate slates of electors to back Al Gore in his close race against George W. Bush. Now, the mainstream media can say, well, these are fake electors and they're trying to obstruct the election or overturn the election or whatever you know, nefarious words they want to use to make this sound sinister. But they weren't doing anything in the dark of night. They were showing up and saying, look, this is the date and this is the place that federal law has designated for electors to show up. If we do not show up on this date and cast votes for Donald Trump, if he wins his lawsuit, there is no alternative slate of electors for the governor to certify and to send up to Congress. He is out of luck even if his lawsuits end up proving meritorious. Now again, long shot lawsuit, perhaps a foolhardy effort, uh, perhaps bad lawyering involved and bad legal advice, but we should be encouraging people to be involved in the political process. Uh, and you know, when they're hearing advice from lawyers turns out to be correct in terms of where they need to be and you know, what they need to be doing if he's going to preserve his remedies, if all of a sudden they are labeled as targets, that is a very, very dangerous thing that seems to me to be squelching in a very strong way, uh, you know, political involvement uh, and freedom of association. I think that would be a profound mistake. Political activists should be encouraged to be political activists, regardless of what party they support. Uh, and lawyers uh, should be provi- should be encouraged to give zealous representation to people. And that would include uh, a then sitting president of the United States. And bad lawyering may result in disbarment, it may result in suspension, uh, but it should not just for giving bad legal advice result in a felony uh, conviction and potential imprisonment. Uh, So I I think that the chilling effect is real. And, And I think you need to look at, assess things objectively and honestly, and and frankly, giving the benefit of the doubt to to people before charging them. We also asked Malcolm to weigh in on the DA floating RICO, the state's anti-racketeering statute, as a law that might have been broken in Georgia. The Racketeer Influence and Corrupt Organizations Act, it's not just reserved for La Cosa Nostra, uh, but, you know, it's generally for large-scale fraud schemes or uh, gang, you know, gangs uh, that are engaging in serious criminal acts, usually involving violence, uh, over a long period of time that are all tied together. Uh, and to somehow say that the president and his lawyers are a bunch of racketeers 
uh, strikes me as a rather amazing statement to make. Uh, and, you know, look, a, a creative lawyer uh, can find a way to get a lot of activity to fit within the parameters of a law. But again, this is, this is a very dangerous precedent to set. Uh, so I, I don't know the facts that she has, but to somehow suggest that this was a criminal conspiracy that over a long period of time engaged in ongoing concerted criminal activity and ought to be treated as a corrupt organization and racketeers, I think is a dangerous thing to do. So consider Malcolm a skeptic. He said his opinion could change if the grand jury uncovered any major revelations like evidence that lawyers were manufacturing evidence or falsifying affidavits. But given what we know now, he thinks indicting anyone would set a dangerous precedent. That's it for us after a very newsy week here in Atlanta. Trust that we'll keep you updated on McBurney's decision and any related fallout over the report. And maybe, just maybe, We'll hear from the DA soon on whether any indictments are on the horizon. As always, thanks so very much for listening. Breakdown sound engineer is Shane Backler, who was in the courtroom with us and captured some pretty great sound. Our podcast program manager is Jay Black. Thanks to our presentation specialist, Pete Corson, our editors, Jennifer Brett and Dan Kleppel, our managing editor, Leroy Chapman, and Kevin Riley, the editor of the AJC. You can follow our daily coverage on our website, AJC.com. And if you really want to support local journalism, please subscribe to the AJC. Be safe and take care. Until next time, I'm Bill Rankin. And I'm Tamar Hallerman. This is Breakdown from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Ocean Breeze tropical beach, piña colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. The AJC's trusted veteran political voices, Greg Bluestein, Patricia Murphy, Tia Mitchell, and Bill Nygut are the essential source for Georgia politics. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution's Politically Georgia. Sign up for the newsletter, download the podcast, subscribe to the AJC.